we are live. I would like to welcome one and all, those joining us here on Zoom, those joining us on Facebook Live, and those joining on Dresha Live. This is the first session. Uh, we, we know it's Erev Hog for a lot of people, and we appreciate your coming to learn with us. This is the first session in uh, A Sabbath of the Land for You, Shemitah, Ethics, and Jewish Philosophy with Ms. Sarah Zager and Ms. Renata Dine. So uh, we're <laughs> very excited about this. Um, I'm going to give a brief introduction to the class, a brief introduction to our teachers, and a little housekeeping, and then we'll we'll get on <laughs> get on with it. So while Shemitah may appear to be a narrow topic, limited, uh, linked specifically to agricultural laws in the land of Israel, this class will use Shemitah as a window into contemporary ethical questions about uh, economics, the environment, and freedom. We'll explore how Jewish philosophical texts from medieval to modern understand Shemitah's broader significance for those who might not encounter it in daily practice. Sarah Zager, Miss Sarah Zager, <laughs> Ms. Ms. I'm, I, it, words are difficult for me. Please, please, I enjoy everyone's forbearance all the time. Uh, uh, Sarah Zager is a doctoral candidate in religious studies and philosophy at Yale University, where her research focuses on the influence of Judaism and Christianity on moral philosophy. Originally from Albuquerque, New Mexico, Sarah earned an MA in religion from the University of Chicago Divinity School and a BA from Williams College. She was awarded the Leo, Leo, Back. Back. Yeah. Leo Back Fellowship for the study of German Jewry and was a David Hartman Center Fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. She has also learned at uh, Yeshivat Hadar. She has written for the Lairhouse, Jew School, the Journal of Jewish Ethics, and Nashim. Uh, Ms. Renata Dine is a doctoral student at University of Chicago Divinity School, where she specializes in religious ethics. She is the managing editor of Images, a journal of Jewish art and visual culture, and a research assistant at the McLean Center for Clinical Medical Ethics. She's a proud alumna of Drisha High School and College Program. So as always, I would like to encourage those of you who are joining us on Zoom, if you would at all be interested in turning on your camera so that we can look around and see the faces of the other people in our classroom, it's very much appreciated. But if you are not meaning to talk uh, to verbalize a question when it's invited or share a comment, um, which you're always welcome to do using the chat feature. Please do keep your microphone off. Life happens in the background. <laughs> we don't always necessarily want to share it with everyone this is being broadcast to. Those of you joining us on Facebook, feel free to put questions and comments in the comment section below the video and I'll bring them over here. And to those joining us on Drisha Live, again, we know you're there and we're glad that you are. Without further ado, Ms. Zagar, Ms. Dine, the floor is yours. Thank you, Noah, for that lovely introduction. I feel uh, I feel a little remiss in not reporting that Renana is also an alumna of uh, Williams College. Um, so we we go we go back a long way, Renana and I, crossing institutions, um, and we're really excited to share this course with you, which I think will be a kind of uh, we'll both be bringing texts from different our different expertise um, on Shemitah and philosophy and hopefully give you a fun tour of a lot of the wide range of approaches that, that people have to this topic. Um, and hopefully you'll have a sense of what are the ethical questions that, that Shemitah raises, if not uh, a clear sense of, I don't think you'll get a clear sense of, you know, Shemitah's ethical meaning is the following thing. Um, but but a, a range of, of what should be really interesting and, and fun questions. Um, so with that, I will ask Renana to add to the introduction and or hop, do the screen share and we will we'll go from there. All right, can everyone see that hopefully? Yes, hold on. I can also, I can make the screen bigger. That might be. Yeah, that would be beautiful if you could make it a little larger. Wonderful. And scroll down a tiny bit. Is that even better? Yes, beautiful. Okay. So people see the screen share. Um, is there a way to, yeah, can we promote some of the, the people who are attendees to being panelists, if only so we can see their faces? At some yes, uh, I 
I am inviting people to become a panelist. If you are a panelist that doesn't obligate you to do anything, it just lets you into the room and you have the option to share your camera or not. So keep that in mind. I'm going to you know, keep sending out invitations and if you keep declining them, I'll get the picture eventually. Yeah, great. Um, that just allows us to, uh, to, to see your all, see everybody's smiling face, which we really want to do. Um, okay, so with that, I think we'll get started. Um, uh, I am the kind of person who begins all Shirim with a quote from the Rambam. So, so in, 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 in character, um, not only in character, I want to start with the, the Rambam's explanation for what he thinks Shemitah is about. And I think the main thing I want you to get out of this text is the uh, range of answers he gives to this question. This comes in a part of the Guide for the Perplexed where uh, the Rambam is really giving a list of all the different kind of groups of mitzvot and what he thinks their purpose is. Um, and just so you have a sense of like the range of what he's doing here, sort of kashrut gets like two sentences, Shabbat gets maybe three, and so here's Shemitah. So this, this feels a little bit of a, of a departure from kind of the form of what he's doing. So he says the following thing. With regard to all the commandments that we have enumerated in laws concerning sabbatical year and the Jubilee, some of them are meant to lead to pity and help for all men, as the text has it, that the poor of thy people may eat, what they leave the beasts of the field sh shall eat, and so on, are meant to make the earth more fertile and stronger through letting it lie fallow. Others are meant to lead to benevolence towards slaves and poor people. I refer to the remission of debts and freeing of slaves. Others consider what is useful from a permanent point of view in providing for a living through turning the land, the whole land into an inalienable possession that cannot be sold in an absolute fashion and the land shall not be sold in perpetuity. Consequently, a man's property remains as far as the landed property itself is concerned, reserved for him and his children and he can only exploit its produce. So let's just gone on in the uh, the kind of tricky English of the, the the guide translations, but what's happened here is he's given you a few different reasons or important things that go on with Shemitah and Yovel. The first is some sort of sense of pity or mercy. I think is probably a better better translation of um, to to everyone, and then some sort of uh, let's say uh, environmental set of questions that the earth will be better off if we let, let it lie fallow. Another set of ben benevolence to the slaves and to, to poor people. And then finally, some sort of sense that we are better off in an economic system where you can't own land forever. So a lot's gone on in, in what the Ramam has said here. And I think over the course of, um, over the course of this class, we're really going to spend some time exploring each of these different approaches and questions. And I don't think we'll end up with as clear a picture as the Rambam has given you of like what the issues are. Um, but it's it's a good kind of initial set of set of uh, questions to think about as we as we jump in here. Anyone have just questions or comments about the Rambam before we move on? Yeah, I just want to say also that if anyone has questions or comments, please put them in the chat. Please jump in when we ask for them. Um, this is will be better for being participatory. Yeah, we 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 want to hear from you and not just speak into the void. Uh, I mean, Sarah and I can talk to each other, and we really enjoy doing that. But but we love to have that. This is a place where we want other people to come and talk with us. Um. Okay, if the Ramam doesn't inspire strong reactions. Uh, which I think in a lot of ways, this passage is not totally meant to do. Uh, we will uh, jump into learning the psukim that are the grounding of, of this, this mitzvah. Yeah, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna have us look at the psukim. I think one interesting to think about now that we've read, we've opened with this piece from the Rambam is how much um, do you see what the Rambam's talking about being reflected um, in, in the actual biblical passages? Um, what and what does each part of of the Tanakh that we're going to bring kind of add to this picture of what Shemitah is and is the Rambam's picture that's sort of an accurate one at least to um, the biblical verses. Um, as, as Sarah mentioned, I also attended Williams, uh, which is not exactly a place known for its uh, as a center of, of Torah learning that we're, we're trying to make it, but actually these um, 
the, the section from Vayikra I'm about to, to read and ask for your opinions on is sort of near to my heart because of um, an experience at Williams, which is that I actually taught, um, I was tutoring for farm bat mitzvahs. And I think there might have been two kids who I tutored in this small town in Western Massachusetts who had this portion as what they were reading for their bar and bat mitzvahs. Um, and they weren't actually, this was a like reform congregation, they weren't going to be leaning with Trump, they would just need to like learn how to pronounce the words and to say them with some kind of meaning. And so I practice with them over and over and over again, these lines, and like have a very set idea of what they sound like in my head. So I'm glad to get to share them with all of you now. All right, so this is uh, Leviticus 25, 1 to 10. I'm going to read in the Hebrew, but please follow along in the English. Um, and I apologize if any of the if anything didn't copy over 100% correctly. uh, so that was a bunch, a lot of verses all at once. Um, so I, there's a lot there. Um, but I think what we want to ask or to see if you have any impressions of as what is sort of the vision of, of the Shemitah year, and we get a little bit also of the Yobel year, the Jubilee year, year. What what is the vision um, that is appearing in these lines? What would what does this year seem to be about? Another way to phrase that question is uh, if you imagine yourself in the in the shoes of the Rambam wanting to write like two sentences about what the importance of this is, just having this text alone, what would you answer? And uh, we can't see everybody who's in the class. So I think yeah, and if it's you a pretty small group, so hand, feel the best way to do that as at the bottom of your screen, there's a little picture of a hand and it says raise hand. And if you press that, then we will we will jump to the top of our little queue. I think also probably you can unmute if you want because it's a pretty yeah you small can group. also it's a small group you can unmute unmute and just jump in if you all right well I can I can I can give us a, a little bit of head start um or not if you scroll up just a just a touch um one thing that seems really seems from the from the initial psukim is that most of what it's concerned about in Shemitah is about agriculture so right it it is Shabbat Shabbaton for the land, not for the people who are working that land, um, and not necessarily for, you know, kind of even for the the financial piece doesn't really doesn't appear here in quite the same way. Um, not to not to spoil the ending for anyone, um, but it doesn't seem like what's what's driving this conversation is necessarily some some picture of um of a like a, some sort of social picture so much as it's it's an agricultural one right so the land needs rest um and and you need and your you know your animals can eat the stuff but you should harvey hand go ahead yeah. so you would talk about a, a rest for the land but isn't that by implication that if, if, if you can't do this you can't do that then you too are having a rest, a Shabbat too? You may. So I think I think one, one good way to think about this is like, if you're going to not, suppose that you live in a society where you actually have to produce all your food, right? So not, not the society that you and I reside in, right? I don't, I don't produce any substantial 
amount of food for myself, I, I buy it, right? Okay, but if you, if you imagine yourself sort of dependent on your agricultural environment, if you, suppose you don't wanna harvest for a year, you don't have access to refrigeration. So now you've gotta, you've gotta eat something in that year. That process actually is potentially as or more labor intensive than your regular farming activity. Certainly it's gonna be kind of differently labor intensive. So yeah, it's, it's definitely true that, right? I'm not gonna go out and plow my field in the same way I normally do, but it might also be that I have to do a lot of other kind of preparatory work. It's gonna create a lot of anxiety. I mean, it's in this day and age, if we said you had to stock up on food and, and uh, because you don't have access to produce or to grow, you know, we have mechanisms to uh, the people don't starve. But this would seem to create a lot of anxiety and tension for people. Oh, because you're right, you don't have refrigeration. It's not, it's, it's, uh, yeah, there seems a bit of a tension there that's created. Yeah, so this is, I think, the anxiety of the kind of anticipation of Shemitah is something we're going to talk about um, throughout this class. And I think it's a really important point that, yeah, you might just be afraid um, of what's going to happen to you. I think actually also in terms of this question of what, what does arrest mean in this year, and we're going to also talk about this more, but... Um, actually thinking about Shabbat, which, you know, this the, the word Shabbat comes up a bunch in these Pasukim, but Shabbat is a certain kind of rest. I think we'll all will agree to that, but depending on what your labor is, the rest that one gets on Shabbat looks different, and there are people for whom, like, who labor on Shabbat in a certain way. I mean, you know, rabbis and, and people who run synagogues in certain kinds of ways or children's programming, or, you know, they are working on Shabbat even while they are resting from doing malacha. So it's going to be a rest from certain kinds of agricultural labor, certainly in some way, though exactly what that looks like, we're gonna have to ask. Um, but what is the nature of that rest is gonna, isn't, what what does exactly does that mean? What are you supposed to do in your Shemitah year um, as, as your rest? Um, and I think also, um, there's another thing that's worth bringing up here is there is going to be some idea of slavery, freedom, being freed. Um, I know there was a comment about how the Jewish people were, or how the Israelites were a nation of slaves and they are being told, um, and who are freed by God, but here they're going to also proclaim freedom themselves to all of the inhabitants. So that's an interesting, an interesting contrast or way to think about or frame what's going on here. Right. I mean, it's just worth noting it's a temporary freedom. It's like you get, you get a certain kind of freedom that can be provided in a sort of constrained way. But then after that, you go back to your, your regular work. And that way, I think, you know, Shabbat is a sort of useful analog. I think it's, the thing that, yeah, this whole past conversation, I felt like really point, like um, brought out the Rambam's um, comment on challenging inalienable possession, uh, challenging the idea of inalienable possession of the land, um, because sort of like, you know, with Shabbat, uh, that kind of challenges like a, a boss's or like a, a boss's ownership of a wage worker. And in, I think a similar way, uh, the sabbatical, the Shemitah year um, challenges uh, that relationship between uh, an agriculture, an agricultural, a farmer and the land that he's working. Yeah. And also the, 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 the kind of implicate right if you sort of own the farm and you have some agricultural laborers when you stop plowing your field also the people who work for you are gonna stop doing what they're doing and that also i think brings out some of the same kinds of things that may be a tremendous liberation from like backbreaking work and it may be really anxiety provoking because now you're wondering well what am i going to do you know how am i going to provide for myself and and those two kind of poles of both feeling like this is a tremendous release on the one hand and a, a sense of um, potential fear on the other hand is something we're going to see as these kind of two sides of the same coin.
throughout. I think we should move on to the the sections um, from Deuteronomy from Devarim. Oh wait, I see a raised hand. Let, let's let's answer that first. Yeah, Judy, go ahead. Yeah, hi. Uh, I'd like to ask a technical question that has always confused me. Uh, it says here that you can eat the produce of the land during the Shemitah year, but I assume you can't. I mean, then you have to harvest it in some way to eat it, or do you just pick it? And if you can't plant during that year, then doesn't that affect the following year as well? So it's not a one-year situation, it's a two-year situation. So can you clarify that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think this gets very pretty complicated in the sort of rabbinic interpretive world. But I think um, in terms of what is it that you can eat, it's anything that's growing in the field that isn't because you're tending to it or planting it, but it, it just grows by itself, you can go and take. It also doesn't have it also doesn't have an owner. So it it's not like, oh, I can go take from my field and harvest it. But like anyone walking by the side of the road and they're like some wild berries that are growing, you can take those berries, but you can't put labor into them. Um, and I mean, it also, I think becomes, it becomes complicated, but that's sort of the basic idea. I don't know if Sarah. Um, yeah, that, that's, yeah, that's exactly right. And definitely Shemitah is a more than one year process in some way. Like there's going to be work you have to do in year six to prepare for year seven. Um, and there's going to be things in year one or year eight that are going to be different because you didn't labor the year before. So if you have an agricultural system where this is part of it, it's going to really affect the ways you do agriculture and like the whole ag agricultural landscape because anything you're doing for that length of time is going to have a tremendous effect on on the entire agricultural system for sure. Um, and and we're going to see how that plays out in some of these later later questions and questions of ethics about how to do shemitah. Yeah, I mean, one way to to sort of like bring that to the fore is um, in a seven year cycle, three of the years are either Shemitah or the year before Shemitah, the year after. So Shemitah is sort of taking up a lot of space um, in in the whole cycle. So yeah, it's not it's not just one year. You're you're totally right. And the same way, like I think if you know, for those of you who who how whatever your Shabbat looks like there's a kind of preparatory period before Shabbat and there's often a kind of like period after Shabbat that is shaped by it having just been Shabbat right beforehand you know whether that's kind of a nice Malava Malka or like never being where your phone is because you went somewhere else or you know all of those kinds of just like lived realities I think you know we're gonna we're gonna play with the Shemitah Shabbat analogy a little bit um in the in I think two weeks but um it's nonetheless the case that uh, it can be a useful way for us to get into it because Shabbat is something we have much more access to. Yeah. All right. If there are not any more comments or questions, I'm going to move ahead with Deuteronomy. Um, one thing as we were preparing uh, these shurim that Sarah and I were both commenting on were both students of Rav Shai Held, who says that you really have to look at the passage from Leviticus that we just read in comparison or together with these passages from Devarim, from Deuteronomy, and compare the ways that they are similar, but also very different. Um, yeah, so, so see, if, see as Renata reads, if you can spot some some useful differences. Uh, yeah, and then the same questions apply. What are What is the vision of Shemitah that's being um, put forward here um, what is its emphasis? What does it? What does this world look like with Shemitah in it? In this way, Miketz Sheva Shanim Taaseh Shemitah, Vizad Devar Shemitah Shemot Levam Se Yado Asher Yaseh Bereihu Lo Yigosh Et Reihu Vet Echiv Kikara Shemitah Lanai Et Anachri Tigosh Rashi Halacha Et Achicha Shemet Yadacha. Afet ki lo yavacha avion ki varech, yvarecha adonai baaret, asher nai alhacha notain lacha, nachala, lerishta. 
רק אם שמרת תשמע בקול ענני אלוהיך לשמור לעשות את המצווה הזאת אשר אנוכי מצבך היום כי ענני אלוהיך ברכך כאשר דיבר לך והעבדת גויים רבים ואתה לא תעבוד ומשלת בגויים רבים ובך לא ימשלו. So I'm going to pause there um, and we're going to read a little bit more. But what, what's coming up in just um, this first section? What is, what's its emphasis? Yeah, that's exactly right. It's a, we're, we're focusing much more, right? If we're sort of Zedavar HaShemitah, we're announcing what Shemitah is about. And now we're going to tell you that it's about money. Does anyone have any reflections on like, first of all, what, what, what might, if, imagine you are, right, what, what might motivate that characterization of Shemitah? Like, what would, what would be behind that? Um, but also, what actually is the economic picture that's being described here? What, what kind of, what's important about, like, what is it trying to, trying to suggest that we, how we should arrange things? Harvey. So are these two sections, I mean, they, they don't seem to be, Similar. I mean, often there's a section in Vayikra or Shemot, and then there's a, a parallel in Devarim, and there's similarities or differences. I, um, I don't see that there's any similarity at all. The first one is strictly about um, the land and, and not working the land. And the, se- the second uh, is all about uh, remission of debts um, and loans, etc. Are they meant to be complementary, or they certainly don't be, seem to be talking about the same thing, other than the seven year? I think they are. They are parallel in the sense that this is a description of what goes on in the seventh year. But you're totally right to see that there are different kinds of things. One question we have, and we'll we'll see a little commentary about it later, is what is the what is the relationship between these two things, if any? Um, I don't know if anyone wants to to uh, to prognosticate about that, but it, it, there might be there might be some some options for thinking about that. Um, I see Seamus has a hand up. Uh, yeah, my initial observation wasn't actually about the difference between like the monetary and agricultural shmita, but it was about the um, the. Vayikra passage seemed to be more focused on the land, whereas the uh, Dvarim passage seemed to be more focused on social relations. Um, and to me, the, the, the movement from uh, agriculture to the economy is actually really obvious. Um, I'm, that's, I, that is kind of rude, oopsie, I didn't mean to. Uh, but to me, it just seems like, you know, you sell produce for money it, 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 I, I guess maybe like the specifics of, you know, not harvesting and connecting that to the specifics of remission of debt, I can see how that might, like there's some crunchiness to that, but from like uh, the broad strokes of it seem really very intuitive to me only because the agricultural conditions of a nation are largely going to uh, dictate its economy. Right, like it might just be that when, and, and you actually, you see this in the kind of um, rabbinic idiom about it, where, right, so they talk about, you know, if you if you sell Shemitah produce, uh, that's, that's, that's something that can disqualify you from, from being allowed to, um, to serve as a, a witness in a legal case. And yeah, there's something about sell, the selling is like what gets you over, I mean, you're not supposed to do the other stuff, but the selling kind of is the, the, the paradigmatic example of going over the line. So yeah, I think you're right that there's a way that this is kind of uh, a natural move. I do wanna yeah. just point out, there's one place where the land stuff does come in, right? Where, which is that y- you don't, um, Right. Uh, but we're not giving it to you as a as something you can keep forever. So that piece is still there, even the sort of ownership piece, even if the other 
the other aspect is not. I also think that, you know, at least when I think of like ancient Israelite economy, I very much think about agriculture and the idea of like a lending financial economy seems to me very, very modern um, or not probably what most people were concerned with. But if you are going to have to spend a year where you cannot practice agriculture, suddenly you might be relying on, you know, on lending and on other forms of barter and, and a money economy. Um, so I think there is a deep connection when you say, so and throughout, you know, throughout the Bible, we've been told you're going to get this land and this land is, um, it's going to be fertile and you're going to, you know, and you're going to live on this land and be, you know, and that's how you're going to survive. But wait, one of those years, you can't use it. Um, and, you know, what does that mean about all these other aspects of, of economy and, and living and something like, well, you're not gonna be able to plant it and you aren't going to be able to be in debt. So I think they are very, very tied together, even if it, it this seems to be a very different emphasis. Judy? I, I had two thoughts. One is that this also brings in your relationship to other nations, that you shall be lenders and not borrowers, which expands the whole concept in terms of international relations. And um, it seemed to me like perhaps it could be that the Vayikra piece was more projecting when you, it starts out with when you get to the land um, and it's kind of conceptual. And this feels a little bit like, oh, now that we've experienced it, these are the issues that come up. And in fact, I think the rabbis discuss the need for Prasbul and so on because it becomes this conceptually beautiful approach, practically speaking, sort of creates all kinds of economic issues we have to deal with. So you're jumping the gun. So good, you 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 got us where we're gonna go. You got the punchline. You can you can you can go home now. You don't need the other. Okay, person. sorry. <laughs> no, no, and that's great. And both on there's something coming in here about other nations. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about that and that there is potentially going to be a tension here um, between the, this vision and, and practical reality. Um, so bracket those thoughts, keep them, keep them alive. They're going to really be playing out throughout um, the rest of this entire series. Vinny? Also, I saw that a couple other people mentioned here that made me kind of think about like, this might be like when the agricultural system fails, this is what you're reliant on. Because I feel like most of the agriculture of ancient Israel was not like we're farming lots of amounts of this so we can sell it at market. It was like subsistence farming. Like I'm farming just enough for me to get by. And then if that goes wrong, then I need to borrow money from someone. And so like they aren't actually the same set of rules. Like they, they're, they're applying to different situations of a person's life. Like I guess could both you know so run in, run into each other very easily, but like they they do seem to be separate in that way to me. Yeah, I think that, again there's some relation when you're talking about ancient Israel and economics between agriculture. That's always that's going to always be there, but there's something different, different emphases, different part of life or something going on when we're talking about the remission of debt. I just want to point out one other, like Judy kind of mentioned this, this potential like tension or problem that's built in to, um, to the, the, the uh, release of loans and, and sort of pointed ahead to the rabbinic solution to that. But I, I think it's worth just noting that the, even the Tanakh kind of knows that there's a problem, or at least seems to know that there's a problem in the following way. Seems like it means there will not be any uh, needy among you. Now, it may be that that is a kind of aspirational statement as opposed to a um, as opposed to a kind of statement of fact. Um, it, it's certainly been read that way. Um, but then, right? So it says, there, you know, there will not be any needy among you, and you know, God is going to give you this land, and it's all going to turn out really well for you, as long as you behave yourself, right? Right? Hashem, etc. And then, like few lines down, we're going to find out that actually, lo and behold, there is going to be um, 
a potential poor person around. So already in, in the section we're about to read. So you can already see that there's there's this potential like contradiction or tension that's sort of built into this account, even from, from its sort of earliest, earliest statement. Yeah, so I'm gonna read this next section, but definitely keep in mind uh, what Sarah has has introduced here. so I'm going to stop there and kind of ask again some of the same questions. What's the vision of Shemitah here? How is this different than the ones we've seen previously? Um, I have we do, did bring a little bit more of, of the discussion of Yovel and various things um, on this source sheet, um, but the truth is this discussion in Devarim goes on for quite a while. So if you are interested, I would recommend going and looking it up yourself because we unfortunately do not have time to look at it all and want to move on to our sort of more modern sources about ethics. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna discuss this um, and then move on. But what are we seeing here? What's the emphasis um, about what Shemitah is gonna be um, in these couple of Pasukim? Um, well, the thing that, that like immediately jumps out to me is kind of this, like what Judy said, I think about this tension between this ideal, uh, and the, the, um, the realistic, I guess, um, and really even, oh my goodness, I'm thinking too much, but like, Thinking a lot is good. Yeah, but like I'm not, I'm I'm I I want to connect it to like the rabbis like crazy um you know they're like I think it was it was it a tikkun I don't know but like they 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 try to smooth over this like not lending to people thing like really hard so that people you know would continue to like engage in the economy and to me that 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 kind of tension between like you know the torah says in this ideal way like oh everyone has to act out of the goodness of their heart towards the needy versus like the realistic of like well people are not doing that and sort of the same tension too of like that's like constantly present in Jewish history of people of like the presence, the like omnipresence even of halacha and people just not following it. Yeah, I mean, I think what this bit does is like the first part of the when we read is this idealistic maybe vision of a world without needy people, right? That somehow this this set of laws this set of concerns is going to eliminate poverty. And here we're like, yes, we're trying to do that, but we know human nature and you're gonna not wanna lend to people, but you have to do it anyways. So there's a little bit of a step back of to account for um, that the fact that this might be hard to do. Yeah, and I think that it's interesting that that is even present here in Torah before the rabbis even do it. So. Yeah, and I think just to, just to like sharpen sharpen that point a little, like um, you don't see a sort of like, 
Well, you might find yourself really, really wanting to like actually, you know, cook a kid in its mother's milk, but you should just remember that actually you're not supposed to do that, right? That's not how the Torah generally talks, but here it does. And I think uh, we'll, we'll see some, some sort of modern interpretation that, that points in this direction, but there's something about like, maybe something particular about economic and social relationships where one sort of greed could kind of take over you. I'm not sure how different that is from from uh, some other areas of halacha where also there's like really kind of deep uh, physical material like desires become really important. Um, but there is this, yeah, there's a, Devarim is already in your head here, right? It's already thinking like trying to understand how the person is going to attempt at least to get around this. Uh, looks like Benny has a hand raised. Yeah, I think just to build on something you just said, Sarah, I think the the reason it may be like this is different than other, like why the temptation to like boil kid in its mother's milk is because like you don't want to end up in the in the situation that the person you're lending to is in and like lending to them and not getting anything back could like, you know, trip you into that same debt cycle that's like really you know, scary in a lot of ways. And that's like different than like, oh, I really want to have a cheeseburger. It's like uh, my whole life could be ruined for the next like seven years or whatever it is. Um, if, if I don't, if I lend to this, lend this person money and don't get the, 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 you know, the, don't get paid back for it. You know? So it's a little, the, 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 like that, that feeling of like the anxiety provoked by having to do this mitzvah is like greater than potentially other situations. And that's, Right. I mean, part of what goes goes on in in maybe that and that helps link the agricultural shemitah and this shemitah is both giving someone a loan and planting a field are long term investments that are very likely to go wrong. Right. So I I can put in my you know I can I can hope that my crop is going to turn out well and give something back to me, but I don't. No, and I have to give some kind of outlay of risk in order to make that possible. And the same thing is true um, when you give someone a loan. You might not know whether they're going to be able to pay it back or not. Um, I'm just getting a little concerned about time and want to make yeah, sure we, we should, hit. Um, we, should, we should press ahead. So keep your keep your questions and comments, and hopefully maybe we'll have time or people are willing to stay on a couple minutes after. Um, but I just want to make sure we. But also feel free to write in the chat. Yeah. Um, so I honestly, though, this discussion has been really great and very rich and has done a lot of the work for us. Um, but basically what we want to say is like, so now we've looked at these verses in some detail um, and we can see that there are gonna be these like key ethical questions raised by Shemitah. Um, again, because in the interest of time, I'm not gonna read um, the quotation from Nahama Leibovitz in full, but if anyone is interested, I would recommend going and looking at her commentary on Bihar, where basically she goes and says, oh, like, look, Shemitah is going to raise all of these questions um, about what its meaning really is, specifically about in Bihar, the sp suspension of agricultural work and the renunciation of ownership of all agricultural produce. And then Re is going to be about the cancellation of debts. And if you want to talk about what the meaning of Shemitah is, you're going to have to look at these things. And then she does a lot of the work of bringing the classical commentators on trying to understand this meaning. So we're going to be looking at more modern commentary and more sort of very specifically philosophical issues. But really, she kind of brings this question to the fore. I'm also going to read just part of the first Tige, though maybe we'll read the second Jeffrey Tige altogether. So Jeffrey Tige is a um, a biblical scholar who I think is still at Penn or maybe has just retired. Um, and he brings out in, in this passage an issue that is going to really preoccupy a lot of the philosophers that we talk about. Um, and it's the following question. Often, I think we tend to think about Jewish sort of broad Jewish ethical values as applying uh, kind of generally or universally, often there's a talk about a sort of like universal Jewish ethic, um, even as there is obviously a very kind of strong strand of thinking about Judaism as a, a culture that's that's mostly for a group, a specific group of people and not, not as directed outward. And you see Shemitah kind of playing with that tension. So, um, uh, 
right? Tige really notes that the remission of debts only applies to fellow Israelites. And he says, I'm going to skip the, the ancient Near Eastern parallels, um, but you can you can learn about the Babylonian kings on your own. Um, but so just like the third sentence in the distinction between citizens and foreigners may be due to the fact that forgiving debts is an extraordinary sacrifice. Collecting debts is a legitimate right that members of society are willing to forego on behalf of those who have a specific family-like claim on their generosity. Um, so in a way, what's going on with this decide, decision to, um, to remit debts only for people in Israel is actually kind of drawing a, a social boundary that both brings the people inside that boundary closer and creates a kind of distance between outside. And that might suggest that Schmitz's ethical vision is maybe not as universal as we might have thought, um, and maybe isn't as a kind of broad picture um, so much as it is a really particular one. So that's that's one question we'll really be thinking about. Um, so we'll we'll close with a few texts about um, some of the kinds of contradictions or challenges that that were raised in our discussion of Sukim, um, which is what does it actually look like to to do this? And what happens when, in fact, we can't, either because we are sort of of weak will in the way that Zbarim uh, tends to talk about it, or for some other reason. So I think I think we'll read this TK piece because it, it's really, really a lovely one. Um, so he says, Moses anticipates a complication arising from the preceding law. Even if those who would normally be willing to lend to the poor might be reluctant to do so as the year of remission approaches, since they would very likely lose what they loaned. So remember I said before, we have to think about Shemitah as three of seven years. In this approach, it might even be more than that. Um, just think about the fact that, you know, the standard American mortgage is 30 years, most of the time. Um, Moses urges the people to disregard such calculations, arguing that God would bless with further prosperity those who do not lend to the poor and would punish and I got a scroll, Renana. This is the, the perils of co-teaching. Those who refuse to lend. In the late Second Temple times, this law did become a deterrent to lending and legal fiction was devised to remedy the problem. We'll talk about that in a minute. The section, This section of the chapter is not a law, but an ethical exhortation because there is no way for authority to judge the true motives of persons who refuse to lend. The exhortation could hardly have been enforceable. This is why the only recourse of the poor who were denied loans is a plea to God. To add force to the exhortation, Moses uses several value-charged idioms, hardening the heart, base thought, and mean to deprecate the refusal to lend. So one thing that's going on in, one thing that TK does in this passage is actually make a distinction between a law and an ethical exhortation. Um, I'm not sure that that distinction, I think that's a tricky distinction to make, but it's one that seems seems important to him. Um, but it suggests that there's something, um, there might be something we can learn ethically from laws, but it's also the case there might be some other kinds of modes going on in the way we talk about Shemitah, which I think opens up for us a, a kind of wider horizon of thinking about what Shemitah might mean for us if we are living in a place where the kind of practical halakha of Shemitah is not, uh, is not as much a part of our lives. Um, so that, that sort of thinking about it as an ex ethical exhortation opens up potentially the option for thinking about Shemitah in a more expansive way. Um, but I also think it, it, this, this passage really brings out in a really lovely way the, um, the sense that this is about as much about what's going on in our kind of internal life and relationship to other people as it is about um, kind of what what uh, what we actually do with our money or what we actually do with with our agriculture. We, we actually care about your motives for why you might refuse to lend someone money, right? You might refuse to lend someone money because you don't have any money. You don't have the money, you can't lend it to them or or for, because you're worried about the Shemitah. Yeah, there's sort of an ethic of Shemitah here that isn't only about action, but about some kind of internal virtue, motive, something that it's not yeah. and only that, about. that internal, um, uh, virtue type talk we'll see in, in other places as we, as we go forward. Um, and, and I think there are ways in which, um, actually even the laws are going to start to kind of talk that way, but we'll, we'll be thinking about that. Yeah. Okay. I think it's from her comment from before. I think it's from before. I'm going to lower it for you so you can raise it again. Um, so we're going to 
move on to this last section and then hopefully maybe we'll have a couple of minutes um, or I'm happy to stay on for a couple of minutes and As answer answer any questions. So I'm actually going to jump down um, to the second mission on the source sheet if anyone's following along um, on their own. So as has been brought up um, in the rabbinic period, we have the institution of this thing called prose bowl. Um, it's a very complicated concept. I believe Rapunit Sarna might have taught an entire Drusha class on the concept. So we will not be doing that here, but it is a really important concept for some of these questions we have about the sort of idealistic moral vision of Shemitah versus actually the kind of everyday living of Shemitah in an ethical way. Um, so prose ball is um, this thing or uh that is instituted what it, it's like a a, a a a form of a contract almost or a document yeah that allows for um lending in the sixth year before the shemitah year for those uh loans to hold even in shemitah um so one way to think of that is if you're a lender in year six and you know that the next year everything is going to be remitted, uh, you're looking at potentially the end of your livelihood. And if you're an impoverished person or a person just in need of money in year six, and you're going around and you're like, who's going to give me a loan? Because then you know I don't have to pay it back in you know however many months. What are you going to do practically? I mean, just to put ourselves in these people's shoes. Um, so the Mishnah and Shvid, which is a tractate all about uh, sabbatical year produce um, states this. I'm just going to read it in English. The prose bowl is not suspended because of Shemitah. This, this is one of the things that Hillel the Elder established when he saw that people were reluctant to lend to one another. Ding, ding, ding. It should remind you of Deuteronomy. And that they were violating what is written. Beware lest you harbor the base thought. The seventh year, the year of remission is approaching so that you are mean to your needy kinsman and give him nothing. You will cry out to the Lord against you and you will incur guilt. Therefore, Hillel establishes the prose bowl. So basically what Deuteronomy feared was gonna happen, um, Hillel sees is happening, that people are reluctant. And so he establishes this contract, this document of the prose bowl. Um, one thing that I think is interesting here, at least on my sort of initial reading, is that Hillel maybe is establishing prose ball, not for the the person in need of a loan, but because he's afraid that um, people are going to be violating this like halacha in Devarim um, about harboring this base thought, and he wants to protect you know people from from breaking this halacha of not giving loans. Um, rather than necessarily um, because there are poor people in the world. Um, at least this is a kind of a reading of this particular Mishnah. One other way to to like link those two things together or link it up with the the Tige piece is that T in in Tige's mind, right? Moshe, when confronted with the, the kind of obvious reality that people will avoid this, Moshe tells them, don't do it because doing that's a horrible thing to do, right? He says like, you'll, he uses all this pejorative language and he sort of exhorts them not to do it. Hillel knows that they're gonna, they're breaking the rules, basically thinks that the exhortation from Moshe either is a law, treats it as a law, or he just thinks the exhortation from Moshe doesn't really work in actually getting these people to get themselves in a line. And so he comes up with a practical solution. So there, you can actually see a kind of a, they both see the same problem on the ground um, or see the kind of potential for the same problem, but they address it really differently. Moshe wants you to change what's in your, what's in your heart and thinks that you can. Hillel maybe wants you to change what's in your heart still, but in the meantime is not willing to live with the reality of like what's going on in the interim while you, while you do that, you know, moral spiritual work. So I'm now gonna move up to this final Mishnah um, that brings Pearl's Ball in. And I, what I, I wanna think about with this Mishnah is what, uh, what kind of ethic is happening? Specifically when you see the, the famous term tikkun olam and so what kind of of ethic 
it does tikkun olam seem to mean here? Um, so this is a mission from Kitten, so it's mostly about uh, bills of divorce, um, but it mentions prose ball at the very end. So a widow is not paid from the property of orphans, except if she has taken an oath. So this has to do with payments for a ketubah, for a marriage document. The courts were reluctant to administer the oath, and so Rabban Gamaliel the elder established that she should take any vow that the orphans wanted and then collect her ketubah. And witnesses sign a get because of tikkun olam. So this is a kind of complicated legal thing, but basically we're trying to do things um, to make sure that a widow will be uh, sustained after her husband died, even if it's a little bit fudging, maybe some of the actual halachic details. And then it goes on, Hillel established prose ball because of tikkun olam. So same idea. So I think this brings up um, what what is tikkun olam and what is Hillel doing that is some kind of um, fixing of the world, some kind of ethic, but that seems to be distinct from the vision of Shemitah. Um, so, you know, for me, I kind of see maybe tikkun olam here as meaning um, some kind of like practical halachic approach that like we can have the idealistic vision of Shemitah and that's all and good and we should strive to live that out. But tikkun olam is a much more contextual and practical kind of ethic here of we can hold this vision, but the actual fixing of the world is in, you know, signing contracts and in doing the things to make people's lives in this moment survivable, even if it's a little different than the ideal. So I don't know if anyone wants to jump in on that point or on this tension that we've been exploring. Harvey? I think you, you might need to unmute. There we go. Sorry about that. Do it all the time. Uh, not unmuting. That's, um, so I think this this prose bowl or this tikkun alarm is kind of, uh, I suppose it's, it's going to be a bit of a lead in because um, to where we go with Shemitah, because we have this, all these wonderful uh, ideals that come out of Shemitah. And there's some, some people we I'm sure would discuss, but then the rabbis clearly see that, well, if we want to follow that, things are not going to get messy. And in order to make the world not messy, this is what the tikkun alam is. If, if we let it go the way it was supposed to, we would have problems and issues. And that's why we need the, the prose ball and all the other uh, uh, not in order to um, in order to address that, which kind of brings back to the original comment, and which is my overall always thought about Shemitah in recent years. Is it's, it's, kind of, it's a wonderful, amazing idea, but how in heaven's name do you make it actually practically possible? Yeah, yeah, I. Um... I just want to draw out one little tiny bit of this Mishnah, which we might have might have kind of passed us by, right? The problem in the 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 initial case with the the um, the widow is that the court doesn't want to administer it. Now, why does the court care about the court not wanting to administer the oath? I think there's also it's a similar kind of like long term fear of things going wrong with this case which I think is kind of parallel to the like, I don't wanna lend and I'm worried that something will go, go wrong down the line. Um, you also see in other places uh, when they discuss some of the, like in, in Gitin, um, in the Gemara, not on this Mishnah, but in, in, uh, in the first parak, you see them worry about the signatures on a Ketubah or on a Get, um, not because we're worried about these signatures, but we're worried about what will happen down the line when someone will come and say, oh, I'm, I'm disputing the signatures now. And what if we don't have the appropriate witnesses or something like that? So all of these kinds of, I think you can, you can kind of connect some of the tikkun olam cases where we're worried about like, what's gonna happen when people's long-term vision of the future gets like in the way of what needs to really, what uh, gets, makes them too worried to kind of take the steps they need to take and and what kinds of fixes can we come up with that um and you can see you can see some of that play out in this in this piece judy we'll give you the official last word 
Okay. I'm just, uh, it occurred to me that that the set, the tone of this, of Hillel established the possible because there is, I think it's an awesome power he took upon himself. And yet it seems to be very um, acceptable and an assumed approach. And then we go on from there discussing all these different aspects of a prosbul and how it's applied and not applied and so on. But the fact that he established it doesn't seem to make the earth quake. And that I find interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right that he does this and, and then we go ahead with it as accepted halacha, but there's some way in which these it's discussed in these two places that makes it seem somewhat extraordinary that he takes a step and he he establishes it on his own seemingly um and you know it's somehow not linked to a particular verse or have a proof text or um a you know a clear sort of interpretation of of you know an earlier law but something he kind of creates because he sees a need and that it is different than the typical halakhic process um and i think that that is um like a significant thing to note that like he feels a need to step in and solve a problem that the halacha itself is creating, right? Like we, the biblical laws say to do this, but actually like in order for that to be tikkun olam, we have to do something completely different in a certain way. Right, and not not only completely different, but like dafka the opposite, right? This is, right, I think it's not just sort of like, oh, well, we have like a little, like there are other places in halacha where we have sort of like a little fix. This isn't a little fix. This is like suspending a biblical commandment. Yeah. And, right. and, and in chat, Benny notes that the Gemara does take some time to discuss, like, how was he actually able to do this? Yeah, no, exactly. Like, so there is, there is some note. Yes, I was going to, yeah, that's a good point. But there is, there is some sort of worry about this, but it does, um, it's worth, yeah, just noting the significance of this move. Like, he, imagine another biblical commandment that's near and dear to your heart and just sort of up saying like, okay, well, we can kind of, we can, we can, we can make a workaround such that we can basically suspend this. Uh, and we're going to make a workaround for a different kind of principle. I hate to throw yeah. it in, but of course. Like, I always wonder how the rabbis can, uh, they can, they, they, they have the authority to override a biblical injunction for for another purpose and there's other places in the Gemara where yeah, you they see also that. do this in other in other places yeah I've seen other places and it's uh, it's quite a statement that they do this yeah yeah and yeah it, it and it's, it, it reflects I think uh, a clarity of ethical vision about this that that shows that like I'm actually yeah I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna come in and like come up with a way to basically ignore or or kind of make make not not practically relevant this uh not not practically relevant but not you know sort of operational this like really you know pretty pretty clear mitzvah like it's not something like totally wacky going on here it's pretty clear what 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 this is asking us to do and we're going to find a way to not do it because i believe that doing it would be wrong right like or doing it would cause a problem that like is, is unacceptable to me um, that's a that's an audacious move um, in the interest of, I, I realize it is, you know, the night before Thanksgiving, at least in, in my household, that's a very important Chag, um, and we are a couple minutes over, you know, I want to, to allow people to go. We can keep this conversation going for a few minutes more. Um, but first, I want to thank Drisha for having us teach, and I want to thank Sarah for uh, agreeing to teach with me, um, and to let everyone know that hopefully next time, you know, same time, same place, unless you're in a different place, but same Zoom link, hopefully. Um, we're going to be looking at some of these, I think, comp the comparisons between Shemitah and Shabbat that we have already kind of mentioned um, and what it might mean to think about Shemitah as a kind of Shabbat. What is Shabbat doing in Jewish thought um, and how maybe that also is related to questions today about environmentalism and letting the earth rest uh, for the sake of our planet. <coughs> We're really looking forward to learning with you more as the week go on. Good night. Everybody. So thank I would you. like to thank you both, uh, Ms. Dager and Ms. Stein. This was a wonderful class, and I'd like to thank everyone else here for
participating, for being part of Drisha's learning community. This was a very active and um, polite group. I Literally everyone here asked some sort of question or contributed a, a meaningful comment, which is great for me. Um, and I'm really looking forward to next week. I would also like to mention that uh, if we don't see you before Hanukkah, you know, have a wonderful start to Hanukkah and have a happy Thanksgiving if that's part of your celebratory practice. Uh, we will be having more classes next week. You can check them out on our website. And we have also announced our Winter's Mon, which God willing will be in person in New York City. So if you are interested in that, feel free to check it out, maybe apply on our website. And uh, Ravaneet Sarna's excellent cruise bowl class was mentioned. Uh, you are welcome to check up on that in our course recording section and other wonderful classes. Thank you again, and we look forward to seeing you soon. Be well.